Uh, let me pray, and then we'll look at this passage together. Um, Father, uh, I do just thank you for thank you for these episodes that we get to look at uh, of the ways that you treat individuals. And Lord, there may be one or two of us today who need to be treated just like uh, just like you dealt with this man. And so, Father, I pray you would do that uh, through your Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the things that we talk about a lot here at Christ Church is how much easier. Uh, it is to act our way into feelings than to feel our way into actions. We talk about that a lot. It's a lot easier to act our way into feelings than it is to feel our way into actions. And uh, the person I quote on that all the time is Eugene Peterson, and he puts it this way in his book, Along Obedience in the Same Direction. I love the way he puts it and the way he writes. He says, feelings, feelings are great liars. Feelings are great liars. If Christians worship only when they feel like it, there would be precious little worship. Feelings are important in many areas, but completely unreliable in matters of faith. We live in what one writer has called the age of sensation. We think that if we don't feel something, there can be no authenticity in doing it. But the wisdom of God says something different, that we can act ourselves into a new way of feeling much quicker than we can feel ourselves into a new way of acting. Now, do you get what he's saying there? You know, we typically think it's the other way around, that in order to do something, the action, I must first feel like doing the action. Um, you know, and as for as much as we claim to be a, a rational people and a rational society, you know, we're led by reason, you know, we're actually just as driven by feelings as any, anyone else. You know, lots of arguments, by the way, are won by saying, well, but that's how I feel. You know, like that, that's like the, coffin, the nail in the coffin of like most emotional arguments these days, like, yeah, but that's how I feel. And you can't really argue with that, can you? And so we, we tend to be led by feelings, but actually the, the biblical wisdom is that actions lead us to feeling. The best illustration of this is almost always some form of exercise, you know, or change in your diet. Talk to any runner, any weightlifter, rower, crossfit person, whatever form of exercise that you like to do. And almost certainly what they'll tell you is, you know, when I first started out, I didn't really want to do it. I didn't like it. I was tired. I didn't feel good after it. But after a few days or a few weeks of really committing to it, doing it even when I didn't feel like it, eventually I started to enjoy it. And that's the picture, disciplining yourself to do something that, that you don't at first feel like doing. It very often leads to your feelings changing to the point that you actually love the things that you started out dreading. Right, so feelings actually follow actions. And I, by the way, I hate to even bring this stuff up about exercise because I know what's going to happen later, probably even later today, is Emmy's going to say, you know that thing you said in the sermon about how feelings follow actions? Maybe you should apply that to exercise, Ken. Maybe you should listen to your own words of advice. So sorry to the other husbands in the room, but that's going to happen to you too. But, I, you know, I'm willing to sacrifice that for the sake of your spiritual growth. That's what we're doing. That's, that's why I bring this up. That's how much I love you. Well, in today's passage, we actually we, we meet a man whose actions have to come before feeling. The actions have to come before feeling. In fact, he has to act and he has to trust in faith before ever seeing the evidence of God at work in his life. Now, I actually think that uh, more than... Uh, identifying with either of the, the other two people we've looked at over the last couple of weeks, most of us can probably identify more with the man in this story than we can Nicodemus. Because remember, Nicodemus is this great spiritual leader. He's this, you know, this philosopher. Um, or the Samaritan woman. 
and uh, you know, she, she kind of comes from this difficult moral background. I actually think most of us can identify with the man in this story because he actually comes to Jesus in desperation. He's desperate for something. And he asks Jesus to help him, but it seems like Jesus puts him off. That's, that's how the story comes across. He, he pleads with Jesus, and instead of Jesus just capitulating right away and being like, okay, well, whatever you need, let's just take care of that, he actually confronts the man, and then he sends him away uh, with almost no assurance that his request is being answered. And I want you just to think about that, because does that describe your relationship with God in any way? Does that describe your prayer life, asking Jesus for something desperate, and yet Jesus seems to send us away? Do your prayers ever go like that? Mine do a lot. And so if they do, then this passage is for you. Uh, we're looking at these few episodes from Jesus' life to see how he deals with those individuals. How does he meet them? How does he challenge them? How does he offer them grace and forgiveness? And when Jesus meets the man in today's passage, he, he does three things with him. First, he changes the subject. Secondly, then, he says no to him. And then thirdly, he proves that he's better than we could ever imagine. Uh, those are the three things he does. He changes the subject, he tells him no, and then he proves he's better than we could ever imagine. That whatever he's saying yes to is better. Uh, but before we look at those three points, I just want to get to know this man that Jesus is dealing with. And we, we know very little about the man in today's passage, um, other than he's a royal official in Herod's court. So, uh, you know, several scholars, they've attempted to figure out who he is. Several, several of them have gone as far as to say he's this, they've named him, he's this official, that's who he is. Uh, but even learning his name tells us almost nothing about him, besides I couldn't pronounce the names that he, they said that were anyway. Um, we learn almost nothing about him, but there's one important thing that we can deduce just from looking at the passage. And the one thing that we know from looking at this passage is that he is a father who loves his son dearly. A father who loves his son dearly, because the word he uses uh, to describe his son, when he actually speaks and, and gives Jesus the request, he calls his son, my, my little boy. It's a term of endearment. The way it's phrased in the original language, it, it grips the heart. And this love for his boy who is sick, it moves him so much that he's willing to make a 20 or 30 mile journey just to see if just possibly Jesus could do something. And again, 20 or 30 miles to us today is nothing, but then it was a couple day journey in the heat. And the question we're asking is, how does Jesus treat a man like that? A man in desperation. Someone whose, whose little boy, his son, is, is sick. How does Jesus treat him? And that leads us to point one. And oddly enough, Jesus changes the subject. Did you notice that in verse 47? This man begged Jesus. It says he begged him to go back with him to Capernaum and heal his son. And then Jesus says, verse 48, unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. Now, this is similar to last week when Jesus seemed to use a, a non sequitur with the Samaritan woman. Remember, he like really changes the subject with her. Um, this man begs him to heal his son, and instead, and let's be honest, Jesus comes across here as cold and uninterested, even severe. His response, he makes no reference to the young boy who's dying 25 miles away. And instead, he changes the subject. Why? What's he doing? Why would he do that? Well, think about it like this. In an emergency, what do you deal with first? 
what do you deal with first in an emergency? You deal with the most life-threatening thing first. And so if you think about it this way, if you came across a car accident, and you know, the car is maybe flipped on its side, and, and you can actually see that there's, there's fuel leaking out of the car, but the person inside, they have a broken arm and they're bleeding. What's the most life-threatening issue in that moment? It's, it's not to deal with the broken arm or the bleeding, it's to get them out of the car. You gotta get them out of the car. Because that car could burst into flames and that person would die before ever having their arm reset, ever having the bleeding stopped. And so you, you, have, to, you have to deal with the most life-threatening thing first. You know, I realize on the surface it doesn't seem like that. Like, like the broken arm, the bleeding, it seems like you've got to deal with that because that's what they're screaming about. The reason that Jesus changes the subject is, is the same thing. It's to deal with the most life-threatening issue that this man has. And that is his and his whole family's will learn. It's their risk of spiritual death. And so this man comes and says, my son is dying physically. And Jesus is basically saying, yeah, but you're all dying spiritually. And that's what we have to deal with first. And so that's why he changes the subject. And it seems cold, but it's actually the most important thing he could do with this man. And by the way, that's what he's always doing with us. Remember we said, you know, you probably, like me, have prayers, requests you've made, and it seems like God's changing the subject. Something you're desperate for, you ask and you ask and you ask, and God comes across as cold and uninterested and severe. It's probably that there's a more important issue to deal with. Something more foundational, something more necessary to give you, to teach you than the thing that you're asking for. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Problem of Pain, he talks about it like this. He says, we can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. No doubt pain is God's megaphone. I love that he says this. No doubt pain is God's megaphone is a terrible instrument. It may lead to final and unrepented rebellion. In other words, you might turn away from God. But it gives the only opportunity for the, the bad man can have for amendment. It removes the veil, it plants the flag of truth within the fortress of the rebel soul. And so when Jesus changes the subject with this man, what he's doing is he's showing him the most important issue in his life, and his family's life, is, is not his son's physical healing, but actually their faith. Because what good is it for Jesus to heal the man's son if that son will still die one day without faith in Jesus Christ? And so this is a megaphone moment for this man and his entire family. The pain is there to rouse the deaf ears of the family. And this is a crossroads moment for this particular man, just as your own pain is a crossroads moment for you. Because remember, Lewis said in that quote, the pain may lead to unrepentant rebellion. You, you may turn away. It may be that instead of trusting God in that moment with your pain, you'll turn away from him and you'll reject him. And so the question for any of us is, what will we do when God is trying to get our attention? Will we reject him? Will we view God as, some, as in some way like just being cold and uninterested? Or will we realize the, the reason that God is always changing the subject with us is that he's got something far more important than our comfort in mind? Perhaps something far more important than our sorrow. 
like this man's sorrow. He wants to heal. He wants to renew. And so think about that. What is God's Spirit trying to say to you these days? Where, where are you possibly rejecting the voice of God in your life right now? As he shouts to you through your pain, as he speaks to you through your conscience, maybe, even, maybe, even, maybe everything is good. And maybe he's actually just whispering to you through your pleasures. Where are you missing that? Is there something that God is calling you to do? Is there something he's calling you to stop doing? Something to believe? Some long-held false belief that you need to lay aside, to reject? You see, this is what Jesus is doing when he changes the subject. And so what is it that he's wanting to discuss with you? So it seems cold, it seems, seems uninterested at first, but actually he's trying to get to the most important thing in this man's life. Now, what happens next in the story also seems on the surface to be cold, maybe even colder. It might even come across colder because in a sense, he tells the man no. And that's point two. Jesus says no. In verse 49, the man redirects, Jesus changed the subject, the man redirects back to his original question. Uh, verse 49, the royal official said, sir, Come down, meaning come down to Capernaum where I live. Come down before my child dies. And Jesus responds, verse 50, go, your son will live. Now, what's happening here is Jesus says both no and yes. Because what does a royal official want? Well, he wants Jesus to go with him to Capernaum 25 miles away. And Jesus actually says no to that. He's like, I'm not, I'm not doing that. I'm not getting on your plan. He tells him just to go. Now, why is that important? Why is that detail important? You know, in last week's passage, just put this in contrast, last week's passage, remember what happened? All the people came out from this town in Samaria, and they asked Jesus to stay, and he stayed for two days. And remember, this is a place that someone like Jesus would, would only ever try to pass through as quickly as possible. And so they come, and they say, hey, would you stay? And he stays for two days. And then the very next passage this week it says, this man whose son is dying says, Jesus, would you come? And he says, no. What's going on? Why is that important? Why is he doing that? Why is it important that Jesus rejects this man's request to go to his house? And here's what I think it shows us. We almost always want God to follow our plan rather than for us to follow his. Now think about who this man is. He's a royal official. He's high up in the government. He's the kind of person who is used to people doing what he wants, when he wants it, and how he wants it. He's a person who's used to control. And if he can't control his son's health, which obviously he can't, he's tried everything, maybe he's thinking he can control Jesus' comings and goings and his power to perform miracles. And put that another way, the central idolatry in his life is control. He sees God as someone who should do his will. In other words, if he can connect to Jesus, then Jesus will do for him what he wants. Uh, last week, the elders of the church, we were meeting and we were discussing what our central idols were. Um, we did that because we want to be the kind of leaders who are able to identify where we fall short and confess that to one another and encourage each other. So we're sitting around the table and we're confessing our sins to one another, basically, and what our central Id idols are as leaders. Um, and it became very clear to me that one of the central idols in my own life is, is this one. It's the idol of control. 
And what that often leads me to do is, here, here's, this is what normally is happening in my head and in my prayer life. So I'm giving, you're getting to come all the way in, okay? Uh, here's how I normally am thinking. Um, hey, God, I've got this really good plan. And I've packaged it together, and I've got from A to B to C, and here's the result, and here's what you're going to do on the back end of it, and here's all the great things that are going to happen. I'm like, you know, before I even talk to God, I'm like, I've got the plan, you know, written down, basically. Here you go, Lord. If you could just take care of this for me, that would be great. Um, and I'll make sure, you know, you get a raise this month um, if you can get that done. Now, the reason I'm able to identify this idol of control as, as my own idol is because um, these are the times I get most frustrated with God. That when I'm like, I've got the perfect plan. I've worked it all out. Everyone, it's like a win, 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 win for everyone, Lord. And then when it doesn't go the way that I planned, in other words, God says no to my plan, that's when I get the most frustrated. That's when I get the most angry. Now, we said before that perhaps you feel like God is frequently changing the subject on you, but sometimes doesn't he also just say no? That's what Jesus is doing here when he doesn't capitulate to the man's request to go to his house. And I think what Jesus is trying to show him, and by extension, you and me, is that this man, central, the thing that he worships the most is control. He worships control more than he worships God, having control. But the very central God in this man's life is control, so much so that he comes to Jesus, to God in the flesh, himself, and he demands that Jesus do what he wants in that moment. And here's what I think Jesus knows about this man and about you and me when we want control. I mean, think about it. Of course Jesus can heal the boy. Of course he can. Of course Jesus has the power to do all the things that we ask him to do. But think about it like this. Say you put your plan together. You offer it up to the Lord. It's all written down, you know, step by step. And say God does it, exactly how you planned. Would that make you love him more? Would that make you trust him more? Would you yield your life, would you bend your will to him more than you do now? Or would that just make that idol of control bigger and bigger and bigger in your life? You see, Jesus doesn't just want to heal the boy. He wants to lead this powerful man who is normally in control to make Jesus be the central person in his life, for the gospel to be what he orients his life around. And so when Jesus says no to this man's request, he's actually offering him the cure for the idol of control. And what is the cure for the idol of control? What's the cure? It's really simple. It's to give up control. That's the cure. That's the only way this man will experience the miracle that he's longing for. He actually has to give up his will and he has to say yes to Jesus' will. He has to go in the trust of what Jesus said will happen, will happen. Actually, Jesus says it has happened. He has to go without any assurance that the thing promised to, his, uh, to him other than believing the word of Jesus. He has to go without any assurance. And so verse 50, go, Jesus replied, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. Now, notice this. We've already said Jesus didn't do what the man asked him to do. But notice also, he didn't give him a sign. He didn't give him like a down payment. 
you know, anything to assure him other than his word. And actually, uh, what he literally says, he literally says uh, this way, he says, your son lives. That's the literal translation, your son lives. Go, your son lives. Now, what that's saying is Jesus did the miracle right there and then. From 25 or so miles away, without any fireworks, without a spectacular sign, he quietly and from a long distance heals the boy. And Jesus gives him his word. And that's all the assurance the man has because he won't be able to know anything until he gets home and sees it for himself. He won't know anything. And it's here that we can see most clearly Jesus' method with this man to lead him to faith in Christ. Because ultimately, what Jesus is doing here is he's created an opportunity for the exercise of faith that was without a sign. In other words, faith without seeing. And in fact, Jesus says to the man, I'm, I'm not going to give you a sign. I'm going to give you my word. You're going to get your sign after faith operates in your life. That's when you're going to see. Uh, I like the way G. Campbell Morgan puts it. He's the one who we've modeled this whole series after in his book, The Great Physician. And he, he talks about it like this. He says, a moment's consideration will show what a foolish saying that is so commonly employed. Here's the saying, seeing is believing. Then he says, seeing is not believing, seeing is seeing. Belief is being sure when you cannot see. Jesus was wanting to bring about in this man a quality of faith that was independent of signs, that was independent of anything that he could see. A quality of faith that the book of Hebrews talks about. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, it describes faith like this. You can put that on the screen. I think we have it. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. And then do you know what the rest of that chapter is about? It's, it's these little brief stories about men and women in the Old Testament and the Bible who took God at his word, that God promised them something, and then without the sign, they acted on it. They acted on his word, his promise, rather than the sign. In other words, all these people had to step out in faith, confident that God would live up to his word. And that's exactly what the man in our story ends up doing. Because did you see, uh, you see at the end of verse 50, it says, the man took Jesus at his word and departed. Literally, it says, the man believed the word and departed. Believed the word and departed. Now, we said at the beginning that one of the things we talk about a lot around here is that it's much easier to act your way into, into a feeling than it is to feel your way into an action. And that's exactly what's happening here. This man is actually acting his way into feelings of trust in Jesus. He will only have the assurance, the joy, the feeling once he gets home. In other words, real faith is acting on the word of God before you see the result. Acting on the promise. Just think about this. This is why I love this passage for especially people like me that struggle with control. Do you think this man went home filled with joy? Do you think he went away skipping on the way home? like in a cartoon? Or do you think he went back with fear? Do you think he was still carrying the worry? I'll tell you one thing, he probably moved as quickly as possible to get back to his son. Now, I'm going to be honest, this is hard stuff. And the story, this man, he sees the miracle pretty quickly. 
uh, it's maybe only a two-day journey for him. And actually, for this man, it's less than that because it says that his servants came and they probably met him about halfway uh, to tell him the news. But for a lot of us, I think it's, we end up acting in faith and we don't see the results of our faith for years. Or maybe never. You know, maybe, maybe, for example, you know, I've acted in faith a number of times this week inviting random people to come to our church. And, you know, who knows what God's going to, they're probably not going to come here, let's be honest. Maybe they will. But that's an act of faith on my part, that God's going to be faithful to his word. And we don't know what God's going to do. I'll never know the end. I'll never know the results of that. But remember what Jesus cared about most for this man. Remember why he changes the subject. Remember why he says no to him. It's because Jesus cares far more about this man's character than he does his comfort. He challenges the man because he wants, what he wants most for this man is for his heart to be transformed, for this man to lose his idol of control and to worship Jesus instead. And so in those moments, when you feel like Jesus is changing the subject, when you feel like he's saying no to your plans, it's worth asking. It's worth asking the question, what is God wanting to refine in my character? What does he want to renew in me internally, spiritually? Not necessarily take care of my physical needs. And of course, in our story, Jesus comes through on his promise, and that's point three. He proves that he's better than we could ever imagine. Verse 51, while he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that the boy was living. And I, I love this part of the story. The servants, they come, they meet the man, probably about halfway along the journey. And the news they share, it's almost the exact phrase. I mean, we don't know exactly what they said, but, but in John, it's almost the exact same phrase that Jesus said. Because remember, Jesus said, literally in the original language, your son lives. That's what he said. And the servants say to him, it says that your son lives. It's, it's almost the same phrase. And so the man gets this incredible news, but, but of course he needs details. And so he asks them, verse 52, he wants to know what time, what time did he get better? What time did the fever leave him? And verse 52, second half, they say yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Verse 53, then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son lives. Exact time. And I love this because what this man sees is the synchronizing of the word of Jesus with the action of Jesus. And there's a theology in here that is whatever Jesus says, because he himself, you know, if you remember at the very beginning of John, it says that he is the word. The word came and dwelt among us. And so whatever Jesus is doing, whatever his, his word is saying, that is what Jesus is doing. Whatever Jesus says, whatever his word is, is true. There's no separation between the word of God and the action of God. That's the deep theological thing going on here. And so what this man experiences is the synchronizing of the word of Jesus with the action of Jesus. Jesus said at 1 o'clock in the afternoon yesterday, your son lives. His servants come and they say at 1 o'clock in the afternoon yesterday, your son got better. And it's vitally important that we grasp this truth because this kind of faith, where Jesus becomes the object of our faith, where he's the one that we put our trust in, the one who, whatever he speaks is true, whatever his word is, is his action. They're, they're one and the same thing. 
it's vitally important that we grasp this because the, the kind of faith where Jesus is the object of our faith, not a sign, not an experience, not even a piece of evidence, faith where Jesus Christ is the object, that's the kind of faith that leads to eternal life. That's the kind of faith that leads to actual internal renewal. And so here's the point of this. It's the object of your faith, not the quality of your faith, not the feelings of your faith, or even the strength of your faith that saves you. None of those things do it. It's the object of your faith. Let's put it this way. I heard this illustration once that I'm stealing. Imagine I have two chairs up here, so one's there and one's there. And if you know me, it's not hard to imagine that I have chairs around me. I collect them. And one is rickety. So let's say this chair over here, it's really rickety, uh, and it's falling apart, and it wouldn't hold my weight, which, let's be honest, isn't saying much. I think, I think most chairs get nervous when I walk in the room. I literally laughed out loud when I wrote that. But this chair, this chair, it's likely to collapse under even the weight of a small child. But if I look at this weak chair and I have lots of faith, strong feelings of faith, and I say, oh, I know this chair can hold my weight, and then I sit on it, and I immediately fall to the ground, and everyone laughs, and the, the chair falls to the ground. But this other chair, the one over here, this one is strong. It's well-made. It can withstand the weight of an elephant. This chair is not nervous when I walk in the room. It's confident. But I look at it, and I say, I don't know. I'm not sure this one's going to hold me. And then I sit on it, and it's fine. Now, do you see there that whether or not I sit or fall, it doesn't depend on my feelings. It doesn't depend on the strength of my faith. It depends on the strength of the object of my faith. In other words, with this chair, I might be filled with, with fears, with doubts, with uncertainties. But how much faith do I need in the chair for it to hold me up? How much faith do I need in that chair? Do I need a mountain of it? I need just enough to sit in it. And that's how much faith this man needed in Jesus to see him come through as strong. This man needed just enough faith to go home, to believe his word. And when he did, he found out that Jesus is far better than we could imagine. Because what's the result in this man's life? Verse 53, it says, so he and his whole household believed. Now, don't you see how comforting this is, how encouraging this is? If you're not saved by the strength of your faith, by the quality of your faith, not even by the feelings of your faith, do you see how comforting that is? You don't have to have perfect faith and be some sort of spiritual giant. You're, you're not saved by the amount of faith that you have or the feelings that you have. That's not how you're saved. You're saved only by the object of your faith, if that object is Jesus Christ. And so don't you see, it wasn't the man's faith that saved his son. You know, we read a story like this, you're like, well, if I, just had, if I just had faith like that man, then my son could be saved. It wasn't his faith that saved the son. It was Jesus that saved his son. All this man's faith did was connect him to Jesus. His faith just gave him the right object to trust in. And so how much faith did this man need to have? Well, just enough to do what Jesus said, just enough to sit in the chair, just enough to go home. 
There's another story very similar to this one over in Mark chapter 9 where a man comes to Jesus, and this time the son is, uh, you know, he's having all kinds of uh, problems with demons, and he comes to Jesus, and he says, please come and heal my son. Please come and heal my son. He pleads, to, uh, Jesus then says to the man, everything's possible for one who believes. Ah, see, there we go. You do have to have enough faith. That's what it sounds like, right? And then the man says back to Jesus, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. And what does Jesus do? He heals that man's son, which means that when, get this, when you feel faithless, when you feel like the strength of your faith is weak, to come to Jesus and say, help me, I don't have any faith, is faith. That is faith. To say to Jesus, I'm filled with doubts at this moment and I don't believe, is belief. Why? Because what you're doing is you're directing that weakness, those doubts, to the actual object of your faith. But if you turn away from Jesus in those moments because you're not feeling filled with faith, that means actually you've made your feelings the object of your faith. And they're always going to let you down. Do you remember what Peterson said at the beginning? Feelings are liars. They're great liars. And so do you see the difference? If you give in to your feelings, it means that your feelings, in other words, you are the object of your faith. But if you take your feelings to Jesus and tell him that you feel faithless, tell them that you feel weak, that you feel afraid, what that means is that you've made Jesus the object of your faith. And that's exactly what this man and his entire household do in verse 53. They all make Jesus the central object of their faith. They all believe. And isn't that better than you could ever imagine? That instead of thinking we need to, to come to Jesus with a huge amount of faith, a strong pile of faith for him to act on our behalf, we need to prove to him how much faith we have that he'll do. Isn't it better that we can come to Jesus with just the tiniest bit of faith, just a, a slight glimmer of hope in Jesus, and he can save us, he can change us, he can transform us, he can renew us into something far greater than we could ever dream of? If Jesus is the object of our faith, then that means there's nothing that we can't bring to him. Because listen to this. My faith, your faith, has no power. It's not like I have greater faith than you or you have greater faith than There's no power in that. The power is in the object. The one in whom we put our faith, Jesus Christ, he's the one who has all the power. He's the one who, from 25 miles away, can say, Ah, word, your son lives. And it happens. Now, let's just briefly put this all back together, because remember what Jesus said back in verse 48. He says, unless you people, he's talking about the crowd that this man is part of, unless you people see signs and wonders, you'll never believe. And so why does Jesus put this man through the agony of this interaction? It's because Jesus wants him to love Jesus, not for what Jesus can do for him, but for who Jesus is. In other words, he's saying, you're after things that I can give you, but you're not after me. And here's the overarching point of this whole passage, that real life-transforming faith, the kind that causes you to make Jesus the object of your faith, 
means you grow to love Jesus for who he is in and of himself. Not just for what he can do for you. Because think about it, don't you realize that that's the way that Jesus loves you? That's exactly the way that Jesus loves you. He doesn't love you because of what you can bring to him. The best that we can offer God, the Bible says, are his filthy rags. We have nothing to offer God, and yet he loves us anyway. In fact, not just he loves us anyway, he loves us in spite of all the ways that we've rejected God. In spite of all the ways that actually a a real rejection of God is trying to use God as a means to our own ends. And he loves us in spite of those things. And here's how we know that he loves us. It says in the Bible, Romans chapter 5, verse 7, it says this, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. That's really rare, he says. Though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do you see the contrast there? Someone might die for a righteous person. It's rare, but they might. Someone would would possibly dare to die for a good person. That might happen. They might possibly dare to do it. But God, he demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, that's when Christ died for us. And so don't you see, it wasn't because of any good deeds we did that God demonstrates his love for us on the cross. It was in spite of them. It was while we were yet sinners that Christ died for us. That's the way that God loves us. That that means he actually loves us for who we are. That's the reason that Christ died on the cross. That's the reason he went to the cross. It wasn't because, okay, enough of you did enough good things, so I'll just go ahead and do that for you. It's the opposite of that. It's you're all so hopeless. You're all so broken. You've all rejected me to the point that I'm willing to die for you. And what's amazing about all of that is he he loves us enough not just to leave us how he found us. Because when we make Jesus the object of our faith, it, it means that he grows our faith. It means that he transforms our character. And that's what's happening in verse 53 when it says this man and his whole household believed. What that's saying is they were transformed. The object of their faith had shifted from control, from whatever it was before, to now the object of their faith is Jesus. And so this man and his household, they no longer made feelings the object of their faith. They made Jesus Christ the object of your faith. And when you do that, that's when it begins to transform you. That's when when you begin to be renewed. That's when you begin to shift. It means that then you can also go to him with anything despite your feelings. Feelings follow action. It's a lot easier to act your way into a new feeling than it is to feel your way into a new action. And so the method that Jesus uses with this man is he he just shows him, he goes, just trust, believe the word. Believe what I'm saying to you and act on it. And so begin to act on the word of Jesus and and the feelings, the faith, the the belief, it's going to follow. It's going to follow. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we do thank you for this example. Um, we thank you for the way that you, you treated this man in this story. 
Uh, harsh as it may be, Lord, it gives insight into, uh, Lord, how you may want to be treating us, challenging us, leading us, guiding us. And so, Lord, may we take you at your word. May we believe your word so much so that we act on it. We pray in your son's name. Amen. I'm going to invite Clint now, and he's going to come and lead us in time of response in the Lord's Supper.